April 4, 1968, a notorious date in history, witnessed the senseless assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He had come to Memphis, Tennessee to draw attention to the plight of the striking sanitation workers. On April 3rd, 3,000 workers and their supporters defied the stormy weather and gathered at the Mason Temple to hear the Reverend Dr. King speak. Fatigued from his travels, Dr. King had decided not to speak that evening, but when his designated substitute, Ralph Abernathy, called him to describe the crowd, he changed his mind. Critics have called this final address one of Reverend King's finest, and some claim it surpassed his I Have a Dream speech. As with that earlier effort, this speech is about freedom. He and his nonviolent methods had increasingly been criticized by some of the more militant civil rights activists. This criticism may have prompted him to take this opportunity to justify his methods and look back at his life's work. It is the speech noteworthy for his use of humor and because he delivered what later appeared to be his own eulogy. Notice how he uses the metaphor of physical elevation at the beginning and closing to allow the audience to view the world from the perspective of an historian. Listen as Dr. King rhetorically crosses time and space. Join him and his audience in a journey which reminded both of their past, of their present, and strangely, of their destiny. It is April 3rd, 1968, and Martin Luther King Jr. addresses history. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through a rugged across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the promised land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discuss the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. Yeah. 
even come up to the early thirties and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the star. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace. But now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and non-violence in this world. It's non-violence or non-existence. That is where we are today. Also in the human rights revolution. If something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Now, we've got to keep attention on that. That's always the problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. 
I read the articles. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike and that Memphis is not being fair to them and that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around. Now we've got to march again, and we've got to march again in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. And force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering. Sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there, we would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bill Connor would tell them to send a dog for us. And they did come. But we just went before the dog singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. We're going on. We need all of you. This is what we have to do. Now the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action. with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop to get that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bubbles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda Fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you're not prepared to do that, 
we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. And so as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed test milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, Wonder Bread. And what is all the bread from the Jesse? Tell them not to buy hard bread. As Jesse Jackson has said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. We are choosing these companies because they have been paying their hiring policies. And we are choosing them because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and the rights of these men who are on strap. And then they can move on town, downtown and tell Mayor Lowe to do what is right. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base. And at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. And I ask you to follow through here. Now, let me say as I move to my conclusion. that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. That's the question before you tonight. Yes. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, and the minute black woman came up, the only question I heard from her was, are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing and I said, yes. 
And the next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. And that blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. I want to say tonight... I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed... Sneeze, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. They were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane. We had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind.
to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. In 1948, the newly formed United Nations passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This historic document remains a basic set of standards for the treatment of all peoples. Critical to its passage was Eleanor Roosevelt, social activist, author, lecturer, the first U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and wife of President Franklin Roosevelt. Born to a prominent New York family and niece of Theodore Roosevelt, she was educated in England. In 1905, she married her distant cousin, Franklin. As champion of liberal causes within the Democratic Party, she played a significant role in her husband's administration. Her efforts focused on alleviating poverty and advancing the rights of minorities. She authored a popular newspaper column and numerous books. In 1945, President Truman appointed her ambassador to the United Nations. In that capacity, she worked tirelessly for passage of the human rights document. She secured the support of many different cultures and economic systems. No small feat, particularly in 1948. Even Joseph Stalin, out of respect for Eleanor Roosevelt, instructed the Soviet ambassador not to oppose the declaration and to merely abstain. We offer two short presentations. In the first, we see her advocacy in 1948 before the General Assembly located in Paris. The second occurs two years later at Carnegie Hall on the second anniversary of the adoption. On that occasion, she stresses the importance of the living document to mankind's future well-being. In both, we hear the thunderous applause for this highly respected statesman, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> 